Hey guys, really excited to share this conversation from back in May that I had with Coach Darren K. Roberts with you all. Coach Roberts brought the juice as he always does. He's very inspiring. He's very enlightening and he's very educational. I highly recommend you check him out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, anywhere you can find him. He's a great guy to get connected with and follow along with. With that said, I hope you enjoy this collaboration. One love to you all. All right, folks, welcome back to the podcast today. I'm incredibly excited. I have a, a legend in the house, Darren K. Roberts. How you doing, my man? Yeah, doing well. I'm, I'm blessed. Everything's good and um, glad we can make this happen. I love your content. love what you stand for. So uh, thanks for having me on, Derek. You're welcome. I appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. Uh, so I like to tell the story of my guest before really getting into any of the ideas or themes we want to talk about. So you were born and raised in Texas. I saw that you were a, a stud, strong safety in high school, a four-year president of your class. You know, it seems like leadership was kind of uh, in your DNA from day one. Can you talk a little bit about that experience growing up in Texas? Yeah, I grew up in East Texas, you know, rural East Town, um, rural town in East Texas. I'm a, I'm a fifth generation East Texan. My parents are from there. Um, and my dad's a Baptist minister. My mom was an elementary school principal. And, you know, for me, the goal at that time was to become the governor of Texas. So I tried to involve myself in as much, uh, in as many leadership experiences that I thought that I could, could learn from. I had a lot of good mentors, coaches, teachers who sort of showed me what the building blocks of leadership looked like. And, um, you know, th those were the formative years in my life and really helped me to, uh, to develop. I love that. And you, you took those leadership lessons with you to the University of Texas in Austin, which from what I hear is just an incredible place. I've actually never even stepped foot in Texas yet. I'm slowly getting down from Wisconsin to Kansas. Texas will be soon. Um, but can, can you talk about your years uh, as a Longhorn and, and what culminated as you once again becoming president of the largest student body class in the entire nation? Yeah, so we got to get you down here. I mean, you've got to come on an away game, you know, oh, some sport, man. pick a sport. You, we got to get you down here. But Austin's a great place. You know, for me, it was, um, it was five hours away from home. It was a capital city. Uh, it was vibrant. It was open-minded in terms of accepting people as they were. Went into UT in 97, and, you know, the things I thought that I knew was that I wanted to go to law school, wanted to be governor, wanted to get into politics, and Austin really provided, I thought, the, uh, the perfect combination for all of those things. So, um, you know, ran for student body president my last year. A lot of people were telling me that, um, you know, in the history of the University of Texas, Student body presidents primarily come from Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin. Coming from a hometown with 12,291 people, you know, I didn't have that sort of um, base to work with in terms of contacts, connections that extended that far beyond campus. But, you know, ran in a really tight race, spoke to 290 student organizations in two weeks. Um, you know, didn't go to much class, just really grinded it out. And the way we ran was that we were on a ticket with 40 other people. So you had a president and vice president. Then you had reps for liberal arts, 
com, social work, business, and you all ran on one ticket. And so we just had a, a really good team and, and the movement started building and was fortunate to get that position, did that my senior year, uh, learned a lot. And, um, you know, it's one of those leadership experiences that I, I kind of look back on and can really take a lot of lessons and takeaways from. That's an incredible story. And from there, you wound up at Harvard. Uh, so you get your, your master's in public policy and then go on to law school, which it sounds like that wasn't just by chance. You, you had a vision and you set out to do that from day one. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be at an institution like Harvard? You know, you hear so much about it, but to actually be kind of in the weeds there? Yeah, I'll back up a little bit because, you know, I wanted to go to Harvard Law School since uh, I was nine and wow. I applied in, in uh, undergrad. I got waitlisted. And so that wasn't the plan. You know, I wanted to go in and be a part of the class. Uh, that would have been um, 2004, but um, didn't get in. So a mentor of mine actually got a job for me. I was working for Joe Lieberman in uh, D.C., didn't really want to be there initially, but got to D.C. and loved it, was also there for 9-11. And so, you know, one of the takeaways, I think, just for life is that sometimes, you know, the detours aren't detours. They're actually destinations. Like, that's where you should be at that time. And um, I took so much from, I worked there for around 18 months, and it was incredible to see how a Senate office worked, what politics looked like. Uh, and I was reapplying to Harvard every year, Harvard Law School. I got waitlisted again. So I decided to, I had deferred the Kennedy School. I went into the Kennedy School in 02, reapplied to Harvard Law School, got waitlisted. Got waitlisted a fourth time, finally got in in 2004. Um, you know, look, the, the, the class at um, Harvard Law School is around 550 people. I would say of all the environments I've been a part of, it is the most intellectually diverse place that you will find. I mean, we had surgeons, you had Navy SEALs, you had ministers, you had teachers, you had, you know, people who were, who were coming from very interesting narratives and, they, and everyone was interesting in their own way. And it's not unlike many other, you know, institutions of higher learning. I think that combination coupled with like the leading authorities in every area of law. So if I took a law a class on civil procedure, I took it from Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller wrote the book on civil procedure. Um, that was the case for for most of my classes. And in Cambridge it was an incredible place too. I think one of the benefits of a place like that is. We were in one place, but I would take classes from Harvard Business School. I TA'd a class, a psychology class for undergrads. You know, you, you're able to go to all of the speakers and the events. And so um, I, spent it, I spent five years in Cambridge, the most intellectually stimulating of my life. And uh, I try to get back there at least once a year just to kind of re rejuvenate me in a way. That's incredible. And I'm sure they love bringing you back to speak and do commencements and things of that nature, because to see what you've gone on to do in, in just a short amount of time since being there is, uh, it's incredible. And I'm sure you'll continue to have that relationship with them too. Yeah. yeah. So I've got to ask to, to go to Harvard for law school and kind of be heading down this path, you know, maybe 
future governor of Texas, maybe future president. Um, and then you kind of have this strong pivot towards football. And you write almost 200 letters to the head coaches and coordinators in the NFL. And, and where, where did that come from? The summer before my last year of law school, a buddy of mine asked me to go with him to a football camp at the University of South Carolina, Steve Spurrier camp. I was just gonna ride along with him. I got there, a coach didn't show up. I filled in for the coach, coached sixth graders for three days, realized how much I loved football and wanted to be a coach. And so really it was uh, the byproduct of a summer that I had some spare time before my last year. Wasn't really planning on making a pivot at that point in my life, but the experience for me just, I knew it was the right decision for me. You know, I'll say one thing, most people at the time were saying, oh, you're wasting your law school career and um, you know, you'll never be able to get back. And I think that one lesson that I've learned is that, you know, there are very few points of no return. I think at any point in your life where you're thinking, oh, I could never go back and do something else. This is the ripest season on the planet and like in the history of mankind, for people to be able to pivot. And so one, I knew that legal issues weren't going anywhere. If I wanted to be a lawyer, I still could. But I also knew that if I could get a, an internship with an NFL or a college team, that was a much more rare opportunity than, um, than, than going and practicing law. And so I wrote a letter to every team. All of them rejected me in the NFL, but one, and Herm Edwards with the Chiefs gave me the yes. Man, Herm, one of my all-time favorite coaches, and he's at Arizona State now, but what a guy, what a stand-up citizen, and uh, in Kansas City, it, that's a great place to be. So, so what was your experience like coming in as a training camp intern? Yeah, I was the grunt. So I just lived at Arrowhead 24-7. Um, people needed an errand run. I was their guy. I picked up people from the airport, picked up food, uh, took players to the doctor's office, cleaned up after practice, helped set up practice. Um, basically, I was just a gopher, and whatever they needed, I did. And, uh, you know, for me, as someone who was trying to build credibility in this space, nothing that I did at Harvard Law School really mattered to the coaches. They wanted to see what I could contribute from a football perspective. And so my main objective at the, at the very beginning, when I first walked into Arrowhead, was just to be readily available coachable, quiet, and just soak up as much as I could, but always be offering free labor at any point. So every morning, go around to every coach's office, hey, do you need anything? Hey, can I do anything for you? Hey, can I do anything for you? You know, over time, those no's turn into, oh yeah, I got this project. And uh, man, I spent six months doing that for the 07 season. You know, Herm originally brought me in for training camp, um, then he allowed me, I begged him to let me stay on for the season, um, finally got a chance to travel with the team, and I just kept trying to build credibility and learn, and it was also, you know, in many ways, my first year with the Chiefs, very similar to first year at Harvard Law School, you're just trying to soak up as much content and, and knowledge as you can and, uh, and learn as much as you can on the fly. Absolutely. And, and then you parlay that into an opportunity with the Detroit Lions 
and West Virginia as an inside receivers coach, a cornerbacks coach, working with Stedman Bailey, Tavon Austin, and ultimately with the Cleveland Browns. And what a wealth of experience you gain throughout all those organizations. And, you know, I'd love to dive into each one, but we don't have time for that. But, you know, looking back on your time as an NFL coach, what, what is that like? Yeah, so, you know, as an NFL coach, my takeaways were, you know, NFL teams are unlike private companies, uh, Fortune 500 companies. You know, there are no three-year, four-year, 10-year strategic plans. You need to win on Sunday. So there's a sense of urgency in an NFL locker room and in an NFL building that's, that's pretty remarkable. So, you know, you're playing on a Sunday. Everyone in the world can see where you stand. How are your defensive backs doing? What does your team look like? And so you're constantly in a very short period of time iterating, tweaking the system so you can get a win on the next Sunday. I love that back and forth. I also learned that, um, you know, one of the knocks that I would hear is that people would say, oh, like players won't respect you. And this is, I think, a lesson in general that people, regardless of what your background is, if people truly want to get better at their craft, they will trust you if you can give them valuable content advice. And so I watched every snap of every defensive back for every team that I coached for of their previous season. So I had a, um, I had this diagnosis of what I thought they could do to tweak in terms of their footwork, their eye control, um, catching ability, you know, how they played in the run. And I would sit down with players and go snap by snap and say, listen, I was trying to build credibility with the player to say, hey, um, Stedman Bailey, I know you had a great season last year. I want to show you 10 snaps from last season. If we can clean up your footwork on the off the line of scrimmage by just this much, you're going to see incredible growth from last year. And when you do that and it works for a guy, um, then you, you get credibility. So that, those are one of my takeaways. Also a big difference between the NFL and college, you know, in college, my two years in West Virginia, I had to make sure that my players were going to psych 301, make sure they were eating. Uh, that doesn't happen in the NFL. I'm telling guys now that I work with who are transitioning from college to the pros, you know, no one's calling you. You're not getting a wake-up call for team meetings. They're just going to find you, keep it moving. So I think that I love what college athletics offers. I do think oftentimes that the apparatus surrounding an FBS athlete is so rich. You have tutors, you have a player development person, you've got a position coach, you have a nutritionist, you know, dietitian. Um, sometimes we can insulate student athletes so much that when they have to go and be somewhat independent, they don't have the experience of independence because they've been shepherded for so long. And I think that's the major transition difference I see from going not just from college to the pros but just from college to like real life right like uh, um, the landlord probably won't call you to say oh don't forget your rent's due in 15 days you're just going to get a notice if you don't pay and so I think that that was the major difference that in recruiting right um, mm -hmm. in college you're constantly trying to convince guys to choose you there's no convincing in the pros it's like 
we got you. Either you're going to produce or we're going to trade you or cut you. And so it's, it's a very different world. That's fantastic and profound as well. I think uh, the student athlete transition piece is something that I'm very passionate about as well as a lot of people here at KU. And, and we need to make sure that we're not coddling student athletes and, um, you know, just handing out everything that they need. We need to help them with financial literacy and professional development and a lot of these areas, um, personal branding that I know you're super passionate about. Uh, we need to help them be successful so that when they do leave that we have full faith that they're going to thrive and um, not just treat them as something that can benefit us, but let's find uh, a mutually beneficial existence for both parties. No, absolutely. I mean, kudos to you. You know, you guys, I know from us both being in the Big 12, you know, the work that you're doing on that, that the institution you are doing on the student athlete development front um, is really remarkable. And I think that that is the kind of work that, uh, that, that definitely has to ramp up and grow and become more commonplace around the country. Amen. And speaking of that, during this time of you working in college athletics and in the NFL, you also established a nonprofit called Fourth and One, and it's a football camp that focuses on a lot of things that we're kind of talking about here, including ACT help and things of that nature. Can, can you kind of tell us a little about that? Yeah, I was at the Lions. Um, I, I, was, I was watching sort of, you know, what takes place, the Under Armour, the Nike, all these big time um, camps focus mainly on 40 yard dashes and vertical leaps. And I thought to myself, it'd be great to create a camp that had football, ACT prep, and two life skills per night. So started in my hometown, Mount Pleasant, we bring 40 kids each summer. Um, the morning they learn yoga, we do reflections, they play football for two hours, they come back, they do ACT training for four hours, um, and then we teach two life skills per night. So dinner etiquette, dress etiquette, how to write a thank you note. Um, we bring a police officer in to talk about a sort of protocol and, and that relationship. And so it's been wonderful. We've had 500 young men come to the program over the last 10 years, and we're still going strong. We'll go virtual, you know, this summer, but uh, it's been a great experience. I love it. And just another great example of, of your leadership. And that's something that I want to talk to you about today is, is leadership and I'm wondering, Darren, in your opinion, what separates these strongest leaders, a guy like Chris Del Conte or Nick Saban or Bill Belichick from maybe more of an, an average leader? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I think that it also depends on, you know, when we talk about sort of good and bad leaders, I think it depends. I think it's very important to figure out what your metric is, right? So like, how does one determine who is a good leader? Is it revenue driven um you know is it is it is it staff satisfaction um so i think really focusing on what the metric is that you decide for a good leader i would say that just in general the list could be very long i think leaders demonstrate humility mm -hmm. the good leaders will 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 be willing to admit the good leaders will be willing to listen and not just listen for the sake of um, sort of creating this, this belief that they are taking other people's viewpoints into account, but actually active listening. So really listening to the people on the team and finding a way to pluck what could help the team move forward and acting on it. So I think 
Um, humility is incredible. Uh, is an incredible um, feature that uh, that leaders have to have. I think the ability to communicate effectively. Um, this is this is this is tough. I mean, this is both verbally and in the written sense. Like, do you have the ability to translate your thoughts into a way that people can understand? And I think the way that it's the reason why it's extremely difficult for leaders of, of large organizations, the, the next level leader will understand that the message that she translates will read and sound differently to different audiences. If I'm in an athletic department, I've got my player development group, you've got the sports, you've got coaches, you've got media, you've got attorneys, you've got marketing people. So you can't really create a one-size-fits-all um, system of messaging because those people come with different backgrounds and they all care about very different things. Your head football coach cares about something very differently than your general counsel. Um, and so the messaging has to be tailored in such a way that each audience gets it. And I think that the, one of the, the biggest dangers and pitfalls for leaders is when they try to create a one-size-fits-all communication model. So you have to be able to learn how to speak and how to write and how to teach in a way that reaches each of your core audiences. I think agility is important. Look at COVID-19. Um, look at what ha what's happening in college sports. I mean, this will be the most difficult fall in the history of college athletics um, since, since 1918. I mean, right, since, uh, I mean, over the, I can't think of a more precarious position than what we're in now because some of the decisions that we have to make in college athletics are gonna have major repercussions. And um, so I think agility is, is vitally important because there will be situations that you didn't sign up for, you didn't forecast, you know, they weren't on the strategic planning, um, in the strategic planning PowerPoint, but you gotta deal with them nonetheless. Mm, what a gem of an answer. And uh, so I love this idea of self-leadership and how in order for us to effectively lead others, we need to lead ourselves in our own lives first. So I'm wondering, what does self-leadership look like for you? Yeah, I think for me, it starts with humility again, recognizing what I don't know. So I always start from a place of, even though you know, I've been with myself for 41 years, there are still realizations that I come to as it relates to who is Darren Roberts. So having the humility to see where the gaps are in your own mindset, in your habits, um, and then being willing to fill those gaps, whether it's through content, through mentorship, right? Like saying, okay, I need to get better at this thing. Let me go to these people, these resources, these pieces of content, and create a syllabus for myself. So I always envision myself as, as the Dean of Darren K. Roberts University. And it's my job to craft a syllabus on a monthly basis for me to get better at the things that I wanna get better at. Um, Self-leadership, I think also, I think if you do it the right way, it, it, it involves a lot of self-compassion. So um, Dr. Kristen Neff here at the University of Texas, has done some incredible work around self-compassion. So we oftentimes are much more lenient and kinder to other people than we are with ourselves. Always tell people, 
be very intentional about wiretapping your brain. And what I mean by that is eavesdrop on your own mental chatter. Like, what are you saying to yourself, right? You think of uh, an idea you may have. You'll hear your brain say, well, oh, remember the last time you started that thing, it didn't work. Or, oh, you won't get the funding for it. Or, oh, someone's probably already doing that. So really being cognizant of, of your mental chatter and also being intentional about pushing back against the negative, uh, what I call the self-defeating stories that we tell ourselves in order to build momentum because we're just trying to get off the ground, right? And if we can kind of get to escape velocity, then, then, then we're on our way. So I think those, those are the building blocks. Um, for me, my faith is important. It grounds me. And so many of the decisions that I make are filtered through what I believe. And um, yeah, I think those are sort of the building blocks from a, from a personal standpoint of, of self-leadership. I love that. And you mentioned content in there. That's another topic I wanted to talk about. You're a prolific content creator. I mean, you're like on Gary V's level, except Gary V has a hundred people doing it for him. You're just, you're just doing it. You're making it happen. So I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the fear of judgment and scrutiny from the outside, because it's something that I, it's a challenge that I kind of face on a daily basis and that a lot of times I want to share my thoughts and ideas, but I guess I let fear hold me back. And I know that's a problem a lot of people face and, and you overcome that every day, every hour, every minute. And I just was hoping you could speak some truth to that. Ooh, best question of the day, Derek, man. That's a, that's a good one. I think um, we had a lot of good questions. This is a good one. So this is one thing I think, I think for people who are considering, you know, should I post this or not, or should I create content? You need to realize how large the social media universe is. I think oftentimes we give ourselves too much credit like if we hit the submit or the post button, so many people will see it, so many people will disagree with it, so many people will have an issue with it. And the reality is that like people are busy um, and people have lives. I've got five kids. So when I look through social media, I'm skimming, right? I'm trying to keep five kids alive. And so I think that that starting point is important because it should sort of put us at ease and say, look, as long as what I'm putting out into the universe is not evil or um, derogatory or painful, if the message doesn't orbit those negative uh, react sort of negative content, ask myself, what do I care about? Start from there and just write, right? I think, um, you mentioned Gary V. I love Gary's content. I think oftentimes some of these sort of the, the John Gordons, the, the Gary V's, like we see their content, we think like, oh, he or she is just spot on all the time. I would really encourage you to, if you have the time, scroll back, way back to when the person first started on social media. And oftentimes what we're seeing is sort of the mythology grows right so they had punctuation errors and bad grammar and some of their posting get many likes or reshares early on but then the mythology grows so i think the most important thing when it comes to creating content is 
first create content that you would want to consume. Like if, if before you hit the post submit button, if you can't say, I would want to read this, don't do it. Right, like write for an audience of one initially, like what you care about. And then once you get comfortable in that phase, just keep doing it. What happens over time is it's sort of like the crowded, um, you know, kind of the crowded room, you know, the, the girl that cried wolf, you keep crying wolf, what's well, gonna turn some people off and they won't turn back and listen to you, but the people who really care about wolves are gonna be like, hey, she's always writing about wolves. Let me go see if she's got some content today, right? Mm -hmm. So you gotta keep doing that. And, and the, the problem is that the trajectory is a slow slide, right? It's like when you're first starting out with just a few followers or none at all, like you're posting content and it's going into an abyss and the brain's not getting the social validation that you get from likes and reshares. And you're like, oh man, it must be me, right? It must be me. I'm not good enough. This content isn't good enough. If you can fight through that resistance, eventually your crowd will find you. Um, and I'm now at the point to where, and it, it took me a while to get this. I was, I was in this position, uh, I would say three or four years ago, like really overthinking it a bit. But now I just think about like, what do I care about right now? Hmm. Juggling work, five kids, my relationship with my wife. What's a story from yesterday that really points to that? Boom, I go to the story and I'll write and I'll proof it and send it. But one thing I'll say too is, um, I know, I'm sorry, this is a long-winded answer, Derek, but you got no, me going. This is great. This is great. <laughs> you got me going on content. <laughs> storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. Forget about filters for pictures. Forget about gifts. Forget about um, all of the things that people will tell you that you care about. To this day, just take one platform, LinkedIn. Some of the all-time, most of the all-time leading posts on LinkedIn are text-only posts, but all of them have some story and then some takeaway from the story. Like people buy stories. If you're looking at creating content and you're looking at where to start, I would dive deep into like, what are the elements of a good story? And here's the thing, people will say, well, my life's not that interesting. Everyone's life is interesting to someone. Like what you may think is mundane to someone else, someone saying, oh my God, I'm going through the same thing. So it's, it's storytelling, it's storytelling, it's storytelling. I'll be quiet now, Derek. I'll, I'll shut up, man. <laughs> no, that's good. This is all about you. I don't need to be talking. <laughs> that is great. Uh, so another thing that I love about you and your content and what you're creating is your daily micro wins. And there's, there's a really cool quote from Kurt Vonnegut that talks about how it's the small things in life that really end up being the big things. And it kind of seems like that might be a bit of the heart behind your initiative, but I was hoping you could talk to the people about your micro wins. Yeah, I love Vonnegut. I love Vonnegut. Um, so I go back to the five kids. I, it's been interesting because I love them. And I think what they've taught me is that we don't have time for all of it. Like, you don't have time for it all. You have to make time. People always say they want to find time. I think that's bad engineering. You've got to make time. 
And so for me early on, I realized I want to get better in three aspects of my life, work, family, and health. Like those are my three burners. And so it's really easy to put up sort of New Year's resolutions that are big lofty goals. We've all heard of big, hairy, audacious goals. And, but most New Year's resolutions are either forgotten or broken by February the 2nd, right? And so for me, I said, okay, I need a daily practice that is small and manageable. And I wanna set it up in such a way that I'm stacking the deck for me to win, right? So um, for example, writing a book, that's an entirely different podcast interview, but a part of it for me is setting a daily word goal of how many words I'm gonna produce each day. I wanna have a better relationship with my family that for me translates into creating experiences of time with each of the members of my family on a weekly basis so that we can share and learn more. Um, health, I love to run. Um, I like to eat somewhat healthy, especially in the morning, but it slips as we get into the evenings, right? So like I'm, constantly thinking of micro wins, right? These small units of victory around running and eating. Because I've found that I haven't been able to, and people have read Atomic Habits, you know, Clear did a great job of this. And, um, you know, the, um, what's the other habit book? Uh, Duhigg's, Charles Duhigg. Yep, The Power of Habit. Right, those are great. I, I am a fan of bringing sort of the habit psychology and the minimalism, essentialism psychology together and saying, I'm going to stack the deck in my favor, pick three things that I wanna get accomplished in one day, be honest about what I, what I uh, the marks that I hit and then reload for the next day. That's huge. And I know you've talked a little bit about not going for cheap likes, but creating like meaningful content and creating a legacy. And I see you do that on a daily basis. So I just want to applaud you for that because it, it inspires me and it makes me want to be better and uh, be more meaningful and intentional with what I put out into the world. No, and likewise for you, I think, uh, Derek, from your content, what I've seen is, and this speaks to your previous question about content, there's always this sort of work personal tension, right? Like how much should I share? I'm in a professional environment, but I'm also an individual. And that's tough for people to navigate. And I don't have an answer for that because I think it looks differently depending upon what your sort of life setup is. But you've done a great job, I think, of pushing beyond the confines of your job to where like, people wanna see you as an individual and you allow them to do that through your post. And you mix in also some of the work, but, but you do that and so, We had Brene Brown here on campus to talk about courageous leadership in sports last October. I'm a fan of Brene. I think about vulnerability. I think where most people miss the mark is that this, that this vulner, vulnerability is what hinders you hitting the, the submit button more than anything else. Now, I'm not a fan of oversharing and there's no bright line to really tell what's oversharing or too much. 
But I think the more you kind of pull the curtain back and show the layers, the more of an impact and the more respect that, that people have for you. Amen for that, man. Breaking down some stigmas and barriers. I've, uh, I know it's Mental Health Awareness Month in May, and, and that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I've been wanting to kind of share a little bit more about my mental health journey and story. And I'm in the process of trying to write something up and sharing that. And, um, and I appreciate you sharing that and everything because it's, it's not easy to be vulnerable, right? It's much more easy to be robotic and maybe take a quote you like and post that, but not give any context or try to relate it to life. And um, so vulnerability, it breeds vulnerability. That's the beautiful thing about it. It does. You know, I wish that I could show people my inbox from LinkedIn. I mean, I will have, I've just been blessed to have people reach out and say, I'm dealing with the same issues around inadequacy, uh, insecurity, right? Thank you so much for posting. They didn't comment on the post, but they reach out through a DM or through email. And you may also post something and you don't get any response back. I guarantee you someone somewhere is reading something that you wrote and it's triggering um, a response from them because they've been in that exact position in life and it's helping them. And so that's why I think also like not assigning too much value and weight to the likes and the, and the external metrics. You know, I just hit 30,000 followers on LinkedIn and I really had to step back and say, this doesn't really mean anything, right? Like it's like, it's a number, but I want it in my post. I wanted to say to people like, I've really become a better person because of my LinkedIn relationships. Like there are some relationships I've built with people and I'm never, whom I've never met but what they share helps me to become a better professor, father, uh, director. And so um, the world needs us to share. Yes, sir. Darren, I wanna commend you for, for everything that you've done and continue to do in, in just 41 years, man. I mean, you're, you've broken barriers and overcome obstacles. You're such a inspiration you impact thousands of people every single day um, digitally and in person you know because you are a professor at the University of Texas and uh, I just want to thank you for sharing some of your very valuable time with with us today I wish we had more time to dive into some other topics uh, mindset and, and your leadership institute but uh, I have a feeling that there might be another day that we're able to to hop on and, and continue building together yeah I'd love to come back hopefully if you are I know you know, when school starts, it's a, it's a different world for you as well. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like committed to getting this book done by the end of the year. So if you have space for me at the end of the year, then we'd love to come back and, and kind of share my journey on the writing piece and, and anything else that you think would, would be of value. Absolutely. And I mean, so you already have an amazing book called an Audible, which everybody should read. Um, can, can you give us a little glimpse into the book that you've been grinding on as of late? Yeah, this book is the, it's called The Micro Win Mindset. And so it's a mix of the psychology behind breaking big goals down into small steps. But also it provides like a roadmap to what we discuss. Like this, my, this daily micro win system, how can you implement it into your own life? And I keep coming up with realizations. Like I just, uh, last week, I, I posted, you know, it was, uh, 
a post that basically my three micro wins were to breathe, breathe, and breathe. Because I just kind of felt my, you know, the, 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 the temperature gauge on my mental apparatus was overheating. Emotional apparatus was overheating. And I thought to myself, as someone who believes in breathing and taking breaks, I wasn't doing that myself. And so I've also put that into the system. Like there have to be days where you give yourself room to breathe like intentionally. And so, yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to, you know, jump back on, man. We'll, um, we'll have this discussion. And again, my wife's a, a Jayhawk, two degrees from the university of Kansas. And so I'll be honest with you. So I had said I wasn't going to do any more podcasts to write. And I'm talking to my wife and she's, uh, I just happened to mention, you know, I love his content. He's at KU. She's like, you're doing it. I said, I said, what about my commitments? You know, my time commitments. Cause I write up contracts with myself. I have time contracts with myself. Wow. Um, where I say for the period of, um, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, I'm committing myself to not do X, Y, Z in order to be able to do A, right? And I shared that with my wife so she can sort of hold me accountable. And uh, she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always an exit clause. So, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm so glad we did. I'm so glad we did. This has been a lot of fun. Me too. Rock chalk to her. And uh, thank you so much for your time. You have such a way with words and, and I'm so excited to read this this new book and continue following you. And, and I really do feel as if you're a mentor in my life. So thank you for everything. You're such a blessing to, to so many people. So hope you have an awesome day. How old are you? I'm going to ask a personal question. How old are you? I'm 28. Listen, man, I, I wish, Derek, I'm honest. I wish I, I wish I was this emotionally developed at 28 as you are. So keep doing what you're doing. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, we, we both have a lot to learn, but this trajectory that you're on, and I'm not just talking about it from a professional standpoint, but this emotional and, and mental and wellness trajectory that you're on is just going to yield incredible benefits over time. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, sir. Will do. Appreciate you. Likewise. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.